0: open field radio like subscribe share and review wherever podcasts are found open field radio
1: cool people having conversations about agriculture and life
0: where ag and life collide brought to you by gowan john adams biosphere 2 oracle arizona this is just awesome we talk it all right now Hello, America, and a growing audience around the world. Welcome to Open Field Radio, raising the hip factor in agriculture, and I say that boldly. Man, this is a great episode today, but before we get to that, you know what this is? Yep, wave the flag. Season three of Open Field Radio starts today, and we are very excited about that. It's hard to believe we are in our third season. Man, and thank you to you, the listener, for making this whole craziness happen and for sticking with us for it's going to be now three three seasons. Pretty darn amazing. And the lineup for guests, if I look back through the guests, man, I couldn't have carved that path. I couldn't have written that out, the flow chart for that. If I had to But I'm looking ahead And man The guest lineup For season three Is incredible And I couldn't have Thought that up Two seasons ago And that's why we do this Because the adventure Is amazing And speaking of guests Today's guest John Adams University of Arizona And Biosphere 2 Now this Is an amazing I don't know. Is it a landmark? Is it some engineering success? Is it a roadside novelty? What is it? And John's going to walk us all the way through this, the ins and outs, the pluses, the minuses. And he's very frank about it. And it's really, really cool. So get ready for that. As I mentioned, in case you missed it, this is season three. Welcome aboard. And we are really excited about it. And along with that comes some changes and some additions and some things. And the one I think I'm most excited about right now is a thing I call Encourage a farmer and you're going to hear it in the show because I asked the guest to do just that encourage an American farmer but I'm asking you the listener the same thing I would love it if you guys would write me call me I don't care what it is and you got a message to the American farmer I want that message And I don't want to be demanding like that. But you know what? It's the American farmer that makes the world go round. They're feeding the whole wide world along with you and me. And I would love it if we could just just saturate the airwaves with encouragement for all the hard work they do. So email me, info, at openfieldradio.com. That goes directly to me. Or you can get on the website, openfieldradio.com. There's a chat thing down there. You can send me a message there. Or however you want to get it to me. You can DM me pretty much anywhere. You know how to find me. Send that message to me. Let's make the American farmer proud they're doing what they're doing and that we're paying attention. Other cool things, don't forget to subscribe at openfieldradio.com. Love to have you on board with that. There's an occasional, and I mean very occasional, email or newsletter or something that goes out that tells you we're out here. But the site's pretty darn cool. All the episodes are there. There's photos and all kinds of other things there. You know how a website works. I don't have to explain that to you. A 12-year-old can walk you right through it better than I can. But I'd love to have you on board with that. So sign up for that if you're so motivated. If not, just stop by and say hey at the site. That would be very, very cool, too. Of course, you can find us on all the social platforms and all those kind of things. So look that up. Well, let's not waste any time. Let's get to this because this is a really, really cool episode. Season 3, Episode 1 of Open Field Radio with John Adams and Biosphere 2. It's all coming at you in plus or minus 90 seconds. Open Field. Remember that time your dad walked in and said, get off the couch and get a job? And you're like, a job? Come on. Well, here's one to throw in the mix. Skip the job. How about a career at Gowan? Maybe you're in agriculture. Maybe you're in science. Maybe you're none of that. Check it out at gowanco.com slash careers. Great opportunities available, and they're all cool. Careers right here in America and around the world. Come see it for yourself. That's gowanco.com slash careers. And tell them you heard it on Open Field Radio. Raising the hip factor in agriculture. Yeah. Open Field Radio. You know, staying accessible and connected is key to running a cool show like Open Field Radio. And sincerely, listeners are important. That means you. And because of that and the growth of the show around the world, you can now reach us on WhatsApp. And it's super simple. The easiest way? Openfieldradio.com. At the very bottom right there in the contact us section, there's a button that says WhatsApp. What do you know? Click that, shoot us a message. You know what? There's somebody at the other end of that that will gladly connect with you. We love to keep in touch because without you, we're just talking to ourselves. Stay connected because that's what friends do at Open Field Radio. Connecting with the best audience in ag podcasts. One episode at a time, one listener at a time. Open Field Radio. Well, here we go. Can't believe I'm even saying this. Season 3, Episode 1 of Open Field Radio. It's John Adams and Biosphere 2. It all starts right now. Biosphere 2, I'm fascinated because, straighten me out, there's a Biosphere 2. That means there was or is a Biosphere 1. Educate me.
1: That's right. So... When they built Biosphere 2 originally, they wanted to create a replica of Earth, and Earth is Biosphere 1.
0: That's what I thought. I knew that was going to be the answer. Oracle, Arizona. Now, I'm in Arizona. I'm in Yuma, other side of the state from where you are. You're in the Tucson area, correct?
1: We are. So we're just north of Tucson um, by a About 30, 40 minutes, and we're south of Phoenix. If you use Sky Harbor International Airport as sort of a pin, uh, we're about 90 minutes to the south of Phoenix. And it's a a really easy drive, uh, whether you're coming from Tucson or Phoenix. And a lot of people visit. A lot of people visit, and it's it's incredible. You know, early on, um, you know, and even – over the last four or five years most of our visitors were not most the majority of our visitors were coming from tucson so you know if you looked at our demographics 60 percent from tucson 40 percent from phoenix but that has recently shifted now it's almost a, a an even split 50 50 from phoenix and tucson so you know it's great we get about on a non-pandemic time frame you know we were just a little over a hundred thousand this past year uh, we were right at, or just under seventy thousand. So all things considered, we we thought that was a you know a pretty good turnaround for us as we came out of. You know, this this pandemic era where it's disrupted all of our lives.
0: For some reason in this episode, I feel the need to be in here early and try and hope and get us all on the same page and understand what Biosphere 2 is. If you're familiar with it, high five to you, and it's awesome. If you're not, well, history and media and pop culture and all those kind of things have kind of painted a unique picture of it. You know, Polly Shore in Biodome in 1996 may not be the best foot forward for the image of Biosphere 2. Not Nonetheless, it's out there along with a lot of other things. And John's going to do his best to guide us through everything else that is awesome that Biosphere 2 has done. Yes, it's a dome, and a number of domes, actually, we'll find out, in the desert that had inhabitants yes people lived in it there were plants and a farm an entire ecosystem basically Uh, there's an ocean in it and all kinds of things what an ocean yes there is you'll hear about it but the bottom line is it did get some bad press back in the day but that was such a short period of time compared to the 35-year history this thing has had in science and agriculture research success, and John's going to tell us all about it. Now, Biosphere 2 was not created as a tourist destination.
1: No, it wasn't. So, you know, originally, if we look back in time and sort of we we use it as a time frame, and we'll, we'll start with the purchase of the property. So this group of, you know, would they like to... Call themselves free thinkers. Uh, they actually had created a theater group, and they they named that theater group Theater of All Possibilities. And um, they acquired the property that Bias for Two sits on today in 1984, and they actually purchased it from the University of Arizona Foundation. Um, so that was an interesting sort of little twist there, uh, and that it's come full circle. And then they spent the next, you know, six years or so—actually, uh, a little bit less than that—coming up with design plans. They broke ground in 1987, and then they sealed people inside Biosphere Two in September of 1991. And the objective was is to really gain a better understanding of Earth systems. Uh, they did have a business plan, and so they were looking to capitalize on. This interest and desire, much like what we have today, um, of going and getting back to the moon, eventual colonization on Mars. And the hope would be is that the intellectual property, the patents that would come out of building a hermetically sealed environment, which is what Bias for Two was originally designed to be, would allow them to be the industry leaders in space colonization. Because the premise was, is that when we go to the moon or Mars, it's not good enough just to set you know, a vessel down and we live within it, we really need to take some of those environments like that, which we have on earth with us, whether it's to provide additional nutritional input, whether it's to provide much better social and psychological well-being for you and I, because the notion is, is that, you know, we can probably get there. The question is, is can we live there and can we live there and live harmoniously with ourselves and those that we're living with? And right now the answer is probably not. I mean, just think, if if I asked you and maybe two of your best friends and said, you guys are going to Mars, you know, who are those people going to be or who is that best friend going to be? And can you live with them um, for about a year in a vessel that's about the size of a small school bus? Not many of us are going to be able to yeah, do that. No, no, nobody,
0: nobody. Yeah. Well, there's some some interesting things you mentioned prior to the pandemic years we've been through. We've all lived through that. And as we segued forward, you talked about when they locked themselves in to Biosphere the first time, and that whole thing resonates, oh, yeah, we can all relate to being, quote, unquote, locked in, so to speak. We all stayed home for a long time. But I don't know if any of us could think about being inside of something, as you said, for a year or more or however long it's going to be, totally self-contained. Because even during our pandemic lockdowns and those kind of things, we weren't totally self-contained. We had to go get things.
1: That's right. And the biospherians didn't have to go out and get things. In fact, they made it an objective to not do so. Now, most people probably listening today have heard the trials and tribulations that went along with it. You know, the most common thing that I hear and it makes me cringe is that uh, a lot of people will say, well, that first experiment failed, okay? You just can't have the word fail and experiment in the same sentence, in my opinion, because we do experiments for the precise reason is that we don't ultimately know what the outcome is going to be. And that outcome does not always follow the pathway that we have outlined. In fact, we learn a whole lot more when it deviates from what we had anticipated coming out of it and our results. So they designed it where there would be no inputs, that it would be hermetically sealed, And just to give you an idea of how incredible the engineering was. So they hermetically sealed Biosphere 2. What that means, it was completely airtight. So we're talking about a structure that's a little over three acres. 7.2 million cubic feet is the volume. So that's equivalent to about 84 Olympic-sized pools to put things in perspective for folks. And they sort of wrapped it and sealed it by putting glass. So there's 6,500 panes of glass that make up Biosphere 2. If you look at it from Google Earth, if you've been here, you can see all the glass panes around each one of those glass panes there's a bead of caulking it's a really thick bead of caulking it's a you know about about an inch and a half 2 inches in width and it's at least 2 or about 3 inches deep and that caulking is made by Dow Corning and it's it's Dow Corning 795 and just to give you an idea today so we're talking if we use sort of the start of construction in 87 today you know we're talking almost 35 years right i can go around today and a lot of those seams or joints, whatever you want to call them, and I can push in on that Dow Corning 795, it's not hard, it's not brittle, it has no cracks. In, st- in fact, it is still has a lot of plasticity. I mean, you can put your finger in. So it, it's done incredible. And so that provided the overhead seal. What you can't say is if you stripped it away, there's a 500-ton stainless steel liner. So imagine they created a stainless steel bathtub underneath Biosphere 2 so there would be no interaction with the desert soil. When they married those two together – the leak rate was less than 10% a year. So that rivals the leak rate of the International Space Station. It's a thousand times more well sealed than your typical skyscraper. And if you had to equate that leak to a hole, that hole is about the size of two of my fingers, okay? So pretty darn incredible what they were able to engineer. Then they packed it with a bunch of different biological systems like you find on Earth, and they leveraged that biology to support and balance the atmosphere for them as well as grow the crops that they were going to need to survive. Problem was, though, is they just didn't get their balance right. Oxygen crashed to a low of 14.2% at day 500, and they actually had to add oxygen into the system. And everybody loves to play Monday night quarterback or armchair quarterback, whatever you want to call it, and point to it and say, I told you so. But no one had ever attempted to do anything of this size, of this complexity. So... Of course, you're going to have things that are, that are not going to work out. I mean, how many times do we get update notices for our phones, right? Because there's a bug or there's some – it's it's an iterative process. And so that's what Bias for was, but it was so widely publicized, and that's why a lot of people say – that it wasn't successful but in my opinion it was tremendously successful because they did make it sure they learned and they had to make some adjustments but you would expect that
0: so 500 and some odd days a year and a half they were in there a little more than a year and a half somewhere they back. actually
1: stayed they actually stayed in for a full two years but at, at about day 500 they had to add oxygen back into the system because the level of 14.2 percent that was concerning for not only the people living inside, but also the team managing on the outside. And they made a determination for the health and safety of the people living inside. We need to add oxygen back in to get those levels up because if it continued to drop any lower, it was potentially life threatening for the eight people sealed inside Biosphere.
0: So life went on in Biosphere with these folks. How many were in there?
1: There were eight people, four men, four women.
0: Eight of them in there and everything. Water was there, food was grown there, life was lived there, the whole thing.
1: Everything. Everything that you needed to live was there. Now, the reason oxygen dropped, and this is one thing that you hear a lot of stories about, and a lot of people will say, because they've read different pieces, they'll say, oh, the concrete sucked up the oxygen. That's not exactly true, okay? So they put in this very rich soil in the rainforest and the agricultural system. They actually went out to a local ranch here went to a cattle pond and scooped up a lot of that organic material. They blended it together to their best of their ability to create a very nutrient rich soil media. It was great for the plants. The plants loved it. Problem was is so did the microbes, but you know, 35 years ago there was virtually no discussion about the microbiome. Now that's all we talk about, right? The microbiome, whether it's in our gut, whether it's in our farm fields, how important the microbiome is. And it was, this nutrient-rich environment that supported an overabundant and overactive microbiome in the soil. That microbiome respired like you and I do, gave off CO2, it took in oxygen in many cases. And what ended up happening is soil respiration outpaced the ability for the plants to recycle that. So outpaced photosynthesis. And you know, think about it: 35 years ago, the plants were significantly younger than they are today. And so as a result, there was an imbalance. And so they didn't quite get it right. There were some other things. Nitrous oxide continued to increase. They had some issues with, with methane, some of these trace gases. Again, we oftentimes take for granted how fortunate we are to have Earth and its systems and how well of a job it does. It's cycling all of these things and just providing this sort of balance. And we go about our daily lives and don't even think about it at all. And then the agricultural system, it was a half acre of that three acres. And the data from it suggests that it was probably one of the most highly productive half acres of land. But even at that, nutritionally they were okay, but they were always hungry. They were always having a calorie deficit. Because, you know, for all of those who are listening and you know, work a ranch or a farm on a daily basis, you know, it starts from sunrise to sunset and it extends on either side of that, oftentimes several, several hours, if not more. And so they were having to do the same thing. They were working 12, 14 hours inside. They weren't getting a lot to eat, and they had a hard time breathing. And the one thing I think we can all uh, equate to this, given with the pandemic and for those who had to, you know, sort of live with your family, member, you love your family, you love being around them. But there's sometimes when they get on your nerves, right?
0: Yeah, you don't. Sometimes they just need you to go over there.
1: Yeah, go over there. Well, that happened when they were inside, so they had some group dynamics. Surprise, surprise! I mean, that's human nature. And so, just think about it. You're sealed inside. You can't breathe. You don't. You're not getting enough food, so you're grumpy. At least I get grumpy when I when I don't have enough food. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, um, yeah, you have to work all the time. So those were some challenges that they they had to, to deal with, and, and not being able to get along with your roommates was a challenge.
0: Just like life outside the biodome.
1: It, you know, it's just, <laughs> that's exactly right. Just like life on the outside. But again, they learned a lot. They did make it to two years. They had to make some adjustments, but ultimately there was a lot of negative press that came out of that first mission. And the, it was really more, in my opinion, the dynamics of the personalities that were managing and that were running the facility more so than the overall operational success of the facility. You're listening to Open Field Radio.
0: We keep our boots muddy and our ears tuned to the thorny challenges of agriculture. That just sounds cool, doesn't it? Because it's the truth. The Gowan Group is a global, family-owned agriculture solution business headquartered in Yuma, Arizona. Gowan specializes in developing, marketing, and processing agricultural inputs such as crop protection products, seeds, and fertilizers gowan has grown markets in the majority of the agricultural regions globally a deep respect for science and a passion for agriculture drives gowan company to help growers solve their critical pest and plant health issues let's say it together gowan company I feel like the more shows we do, the more we get to know each other. You know what I mean? I know you, you know me. Oh, look, we're just regular people, right? I mow my yard, you mow your yard. Regular stuff. And when it comes to promoting Open Field Radio, I need regular people to tell other regular people this show is happening. So tell somebody. Knock on somebody's door, call them up, send them a text, whatever, and tell them you're listening to Open Field Radio, and by golly, they should be too. It'll be awesome, I promise, because that's what friends do at Open Field Radio. Quick shout-out to some folks we know are listening to Open Field Radio. Big hello to Westlaco, Texas, Ogden, Iowa, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Queens, New York, Brazil, Indiana, Buenos Aires, Argentina, Paris, France, and Amsterdam, Netherlands. Thanks for listening. This is Larry Jamison from Maple Grove, Minnesota, and I'm driving across the great state of Iowa and listening to Open Field Radio. From the Gowan Global Studio, deep inside the Lee Hotel, this is Open Field Radio. Well, I love what you said, you know, that through this process, you realize how awesome the system that is Earth. And I think we, we so often run right by that. We, we can try and recreate it. That's fine. And we probably should figure that out. But the bottom line is where we live and what we live on is pretty stunning
1: all the way around. Absolutely. And that point is so well taken. And I'm often asked, you know, what is the most important lesson learned from Biosphere two? And it's exactly what you said. It really helped to reinforce how little we truly understand earth systems, how infinitely complex they are. And we have just begun to scratch the surface of understanding their functionality. And no matter how sophisticated, how smart we think we are, we're not even close to being able to replicate it. And remember when they sealed Biosphere two, it's pretty much flora. There is a little bit of fauna inside, but it's nowhere. Our tropical rainforest, which is about a half acre, today it has over a hundred species of plants that are interacting and growing with one another, but it doesn't have the same fauna if if you went down to the Amazon basin, which is roughly, I mean, you know, we don't have monkeys in the canopy. We don't have a jaguar coming through the bottom forest floor and working its way through. We don't have a bunch of birds. We got a few things inside, but nothing like that. And it's just because there's no way that you could support those types of animals without doing a significant amount of supplemental feeding and enhancements. And the objective was when they built Biosphere 2, one of them was is to create what hopefully would be a self-sustaining environment.
0: Now, at this point, if you are able, pull up Google Earth. It's truly worth it. Look up Biosphere 2 on the Google Earth there. You heard John mention earlier you can see this on Google Earth, and it's really fascinating and incredibly clear. But as we move ahead here, he's going to talk about the layout of the place and so forth and so on, and it's really kind of cool to get your head around what exactly we're talking about and the amount of land and area this thing covers. Completely cool. Look up Google Earth. Just search Biosphere 2 Oracle, Arizona you'll find it right away. Let's get back to John. I'd like to get to some of the takeaways from it because I bet there's quite a few, but let's go backwards just a little bit and mostly for the listener, for me, but also for the listener. Take me through the layout of the place. We've talked I know there's a half an acre of this and there's some acreage of that. Talk to me about how it's laid out and the functionalities of that.
1: Great. That's a, that's a great question. So you want to think of Biosphere 2. I like to imagine it as a T, Okay. So we've got the, the upper portion of the T is going to be the north-south axis, and the leg of the T is going to be the east-west axis, okay? And think, think of it just like that. Now, it's a little different-looking T because on that upper leg, the one that runs north and south, on either end of that upper leg, you have two large pyramids. And then you've got this long middle section between them. And the pyramids look like a sort of a Mayan pyramid model. So if you can imagine sort of stepping in them up in, in multiple layers as you go up in height and, and getting smaller at the top, just like a pyramid would do, but more boxy or square, not, um, you know, the sort of pointed or, or triangle-like, true triangle-like pyramid that you see in Egypt. This area, this north-south axis area, I refer to as the wilderness. And so on the northern end under the largest pyramid you have the rainforest originally modeled after an equatorial rainforest you find down in south america around the amazon basin then as we work our way south up on top we have a savanna. it was modeled after a subtropical savanna, so something like what you'd find you know as you move a little bit away from the equator um, in africa for example and then if you look over you got a cliff And you look over this cliff and right below it, we've got this large body of water. It's about a million gallons is this tank, it's salt water. And it was originally modeled after a Caribbean reef environment. And we work our way down just beyond the, still going to the south, just beyond the ocean. We have a mangrove system. So we have mangroves that were collected originally from South Florida, from a, a site that was going to be developed. They scooped up as much of the root ball and the soil and the organisms associated with the water Put them in these things. They transported them here on a big semi truck and put them into that. And we have red, black, and white mangroves. It's a really incredible. So I think, as far as I know, we are the largest indoor mangrove system anywhere. The Smithsonian had one in DC, but they recently decommissioned it. So I think, you know, we have that honor now of having the largest indoor mangrove system that I know of. So if we jump back up, um, up on this this cliff, and and remember, you know, from the rainforest, if you can imagine, we're slightly going down. There's a like gradual descent as we're working our way down. So we're back up on the the land portion of the terrestrial portion. And as you move away from the upper savanna, you give way to the lower savanna. Then you have the thorn scrub, and then on the far end, the far southern end, the fi- the other pyramid I had mentioned, smaller in stature to the one of the rainforest, but looks very similar. You have a coastal fog desert, and so this is a desert. It is drier, but it's not a desert like you might associate with that around Yuma or around Tucson. This is one that you would encounter and the plants that you would encounter as you drive from south Tucson into Mexico and work your way down the Baja Peninsula. Okay, And so because of its proximity to the coast, it has slightly higher humidity levels. Its temperatures are a little bit more mild. Um, It still has sort of those extremes we think of the desert where it gets really cool at night, really hot during the day. But precipitation-wise, it typically gets its precipitation input during the winter, and it's really dry the rest of the time of the year. So it's active winter, summer, dormant. Um, And so they they did that by design. But all of the systems, if you think about it, the general characteristic that they share is that they are all tropical or subtropical in nature, okay? And we'll talk about why that is. Now, if we go to the east-west axis of the T, so the leg of the T, There was a half acre that was set aside in this portion for their agricultural practices. So they brought in and created um, an area where they filled it up with about four feet of soil and they grew their agricultural crops and they grew a whole suite of crops, anything that they could get to grow, but they will tell you that they weren't very good farmers the first go around. So they struggled and the one thing, well, there were several things, but the one staple for them were sweet potatoes. So I hope everybody likes sweet potatoes because that's what they were primarily (laughs) eating for two years. Okay, I love sweet potatoes. I don't know if I could eat them every single day for two years. In fact, they ate so many sweet potatoes. Carrots did pretty well for them too. Onions did okay. Um, you know, a few other things, peppers and some things they were able to sprinkle. in. they even had some rice patties. They grew some tilapia in there. But again, nothing provided sort of an overabundance. They were always struggling. Um, but they ate so many sweet potatoes that the keratin turned their skin yellow. So, when they came out, they were not yellow, but orange in color. So, they were kind of this orangish tinge to them because they were eating so much of it. But in this area, um, just on the other side, just to the north, if you think about it, this east west axis, there's a place that they we called the human habitat. This is where they lived. So, they had their own apartment. Uh, they would have shared a restaurant between two of them. They had workout facility they had an analytical laboratory they had a medical office Um, they had a place where they did have uh, a few animals so they had some goats some chickens some pigs and they had a little area they called it the, the animal bay or animal section they also had a you know a fully decked out kitchen they had a really nice dining area where they would eat and, and spend some time. So, you know, they, they had all of those amenities The you know, the big difference was, and it was you know, a pretty darn big house if you think of it. Uh, the difference was is that, you know, you were stuck with seven other people and you, you couldn't just hop outside. Now they could have if they wanted to, but they made the dedication that they were not going to leave the facility for two years. And they did so. They achieved that with the exception of one person. So, um, you know, all of those who have worked with, Wheat processing type equipment and stuff. One of the bias variants. Her name is Jane Pointer. Uh, she was thrashing some wheat to get the seeds off of it with a uh, a mechanical device, and she got her finger too close in there and actually lopped off the top of it. And they did have a medical doctor who was part of the team of eight that was sealed inside. He did not feel comfortable reattaching it to the degree that was required, so they actually took her out, took her down to the University of Arizona Medical Center. Uh, did what they needed to do there and then brought her back. And she went back in. And I think she was out for about eight hours, 12 hours, something like that.
0: The Biosphereans, the original ones, were they part of the original group that brainstormed this whole thing?
1: They were. um, They were part of that team. It was very much a a collective team. But yes, uh, the eight that were sealed inside were also part of the group. And, you know, I often get asked, well, how were they selected? You know, and we think of, selection process whether it's a the the rigor that one has to go through if they're going to do special forces you know what an astronaut has to do you know from their undergraduate to their graduate work to you know the time that they have in a flight simulator or that they're a pilot to you know the social and psychological evaluations that they go to and then the, the additional testing i mean it is just super extensive they didn't have those same types of requirements so it's like you and i are talking here and hey you know, Mark, I really like you. And we met on the street, you know, you should come in and join our our group here and you get some unique skills. And so that's sort of how a lot of their relationships and how they built their group up. And, you know, they they did do training. Don't get me wrong. They, they did some testing and some training and they tried to pair it. But everything that I've read and the personal communications I've had with some of them, you know, it didn't have that same level of rigor, but, you know, they pretty much got it right. And, even today people will tell you we still haven't figured out how you pick the ultimate team there's always personality traits you can run them through a gamut of scenarios but until you're actually in that scenario you don't know how people are going to respond and so they 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 did a pretty good job i mean it worked out they had they had their differences they had their skirmishes but ultimately they were able to make it through
0: and out of the original group I forget how you referred to them. You were a performance group at some point.
1: They were. They were a theater group.
0: In there, there was thinkers and engineer type that went, "Hey, this is going to be a cool thing."
1: There were, and there were some brilliant individuals. I mean, well, uh, you know, a couple of them of the original bias hearing. So Jane Pointer and Tabor McCollum. They they went in as a couple. They came out as a couple. They're they're still you know married or partners today. Uh, but they've gone on and created three different aerospace companies. They're the ones that are been putting forward this idea of you know this space tourism, but using uh, high altitude balloons and these gondola type structures. But Tabor's a brilliant individual. I think uh, Popular Mechanics featured him as like um, amateur inventor of the year or something, and. You know, he was working on developing a like a diving suit that could be used in adverse um, fluids like diesel f- or jet fuel or, you know, some of these other things. So so you just some really cool stuff. So, yes, brilliant individuals. They all had uh, different skills, as one might imagine, that they brought to the team that allowed them to successfully stay inside for the two years.
0: Coast to coast and around the world. You're listening to Open Field Radio. If you haven't heard it, it's new to you, right? Gowan USA has a broad selection of herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides to deliver customized solutions for your crops. Gowan provides the right programs to fit your unique needs, standing behind our products with expert service and support. And Gowan USA is family-owned and operated right here in the United States of America for over 55 years. That's a long time. Check it out for yourself At GowanCo.com. And now you know. Let me start this by saying this is not a paid advertisement or something someone talked me into doing. This is just me, Mark, talking about something I really like. And what I really like right now are my brand new speakers in my studio here from IK Multimedia the iLoud Micro Monitors. Whatever your listening status may be, so to speak, whether you work in a studio or you're at home or you need something great on your desk, I kid you not, these are mind blowing. High-end sound without the high-end price, linear frequency response, zero coloration, transparency, headroom for days. To hear the truth, you need reference speakers that offer up, and these offer up. Do I sound excited? That's because I am. I'm mixing this very show on these speakers right now. They're that cool. Believe what you read. Believe the hype. The iLoud Micro Monitors from IK Multimedia. Check them out for yourself at ikmultimedia.com and tell them you heard it on Open Field Radio. Open Field Radio. Like, share, subscribe. This is Michael Ruhlman, author of *Grocery: The Buying and Selling of Food in America*. Price check on Honey Nut Wonder Rose. Season one, episode four, and you're listening to Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Open Field Radio. And now back to Open Field Radio with our guest from Biosphere Two, John Adams. Let's go to the takeaways. What? There's got to be a list of them, and some of them more significant than others. From uh, the first go round with this, can you uh, can you enlighten us to some level? it
1: does absolutely and there are some really significant takeaways so but before we before we we get to that i just want to make sure that you know our audience really sort of comprehends and grasps sort of biosphere today and how it's different from the way it was originally designed and operated so originally designed and operated for the intent of being hermetically sealed no air exchange people living inside and so again if we look at from when biosphere started construction to where we are today we're about 35 years okay only really four of those years that you have people living inside bias for two for the idea with sort of what we call the human experiments, okay? So you had the first group that stayed inside of eight people for two years. They had a short break, they fine-tuned, made some tweaks. Then you had another group of seven go inside, five men, two women. They were only inside for about six months. And then the person who financed the project, a guy, a gentleman by the name of Ed Bass, he and his team made a, the decision that they were no longer going to continue with the human missions and that they were going to transform it into a facility that's going to be used for earth and environmental science and research and that's when they brought in columbia university and columbia university came in and did some remarkable science but ultimately had some administrative changes and for those of you who are here in arizona or maybe even elsewhere uh, there is a person a very prominent individual today in the state of arizona that's made a huge Mark, because of what he's done to ASU and and, and and its transformation over the last 20 years, his name was Michael Crow. And so Michael Crow actually was at Columbia University and was one of the principals who managed Biosphere 2 for them. But when he left to be president of Arizona State University, George Rupp, who was a sitting president at the time of Columbia, he also departed. The new incoming administration, as we often know, priorities shift, and they didn't want to continue to manage Biosphere 2. And so in 2007, The University of Arizona came in and started managing the facility and have been doing so now ever since. They not only manage, but they actually own it. And over Biosphere's lifespan or timeframe when it's been used for Earth environmental sciences, some of the real takeaways are just incredible. But but again, that fundamental takeaway is that Biosphere 2, I think, has allowed us to recognize how little we truly understand Earth systems and just how incredible Earth itself is because you just can't recreate it.
0: I love that comment. And I think it's the second time in the show he said it. In this day and age, man, to hear somebody say, Earth is awesome and you can't recreate it, what did he just say? That's fantastic. I love it. Who knows if there's life somewhere else in a faraway galaxy or anything else. Really doesn't matter because we live right here. And planet Earth all by itself is showing us it ain't going anywhere. And we got a lot to learn.
1: So you want me to get into some of those takeaways? Or did sure, you have... let's dive in. All right. So one of the big ones research-wise, I think one of the most significant ones, especially early on, was this idea where they took that ocean, that million-gallon Caribbean ocean, it had corals, it had fish, it had sea anemones, so it had a whole host of invertebrates in it. And what they did is they actually, uh, a, a researcher by the name of Chris Langdon, who's now at the University of Miami, another gentleman by the name of Marlon Atkinson and, and their team, they actually replicated by changing the chemistry of our water what future atmospheres are going to be like over the ocean and how they're going to influence the chemistry, and why that's important in particular is what they were really interested in. It was how increasing atmospheric CO2 is going to change the water chemistry. So I'm sure we many of us that are listening today, you know, we've had a soda, right? And you've always heard from your parents early on, soda is not good for you to drink, not only because of the sugar, because it's really has a low pH, it's very acidic, right? Well, a lot of that is driven by the CO2 that they pump into it. So you put CO2 in the water and it actually drives down the pH, okay? Makes it more acidic. And so what happens in ocean water is as you have high concentration in the atmosphere, it's gonna diffuse into the water. It's gonna go from high concentration to low concentration. So it's driving our world's ocean pH down. It changes the chemistry. So CO2 plus water becomes carbonic acid. Carbonic acid then reacts with carbonate that's in the water column to become bicarbonate. And in this bicarbonate form, It's no longer readily uptakeable for things that calcify. And those things that calcify are things like corals. Those things are like clams, oysters, snails that create these. And so what they were able to show is that under conditions, much like what we have today, you see a significant slowing in coral growth. So that was one of the first major findings out of our ocean. And that was done right here at Biosphere 2. You hear about it all the time now in the news. as ocean acidification. We hear about coral bleaching. Some of it is attributed to this, but most coral bleaching that we see worldwide is typically attributed to these really high coastal water temperatures that we're seeing in these regions um, that really tend to be detrimental to corals and their longevity.
0: Wow. Wow. All of that out of a million gallons in Biosphere 2.
1: Right here, you know, who who would have thought that an ocean in the desert, in the desert. would be contributing <laughs> scientifically in the way that it does? And we've got some. I mean, Dr. Diane Thompson, she's the director of research for the Ocean Today, and you know, she's got some really ambitious plans to use our ocean. We've got about sixty partner institutions, and these folks are individuals doing research in Hawaii, uh, in California. Uh, We've got partnerships with Georgia Aquarium, with folks in Florida, with folks in Australia. But what we want to do is continue to use our ocean experimentally to test the ideas that are much more difficult to do in a lab because you just can't achieve the scale. But yet bias for two, we have that scale, but we have the capability to control and manipulate the condition. So we're this sort of nice middle ground between very precisely controlled laboratory experiments and field observations where we have little to no control. We're sort of that that middle point. And they refer to it as a scaling. Um, and so unfortunately, you just can't put a dot here and a dot here, and it's a nice linear relationship Oftentimes, we see very dramatic changes as you go from a small scale to a large scale. These emergent properties would come out. So the ocean is a primary research area, and we're renovating and developing it so that we can continue to do experiments. And we're going to do some heat-tolerant experiments here in the future in that ocean once we finish some of these upgrades. The rainforest is another place that when you walk into there, you just can't believe that you've got this right here in southern Arizona. So we've got cacti outside. We've got mesquite trees, a few palo verdes. And then you walk inside and you got this lush jungle environment. But what's really cool though is you can control it. So we can control the rain, we can control the temperature, we can control the atmospheric gas composition. And we've done that to look at how the system's going to respond under future conditions that we predict are coming. So we've given it an extended d- drought for 70 days. We've changed the atmospheric CO2 like it's going to be in about 100 years or 50 years. We've increased the temperature and looked at how well did these plants do as a system at dealing with those higher temperatures. Things that we see happening right now in front of us, and it's given it's given us tremendous insight.
0: With the first group that was in there, how was the climate controlled? How did that system work?
1: Yeah, so the, there's, there were still mechanical devices that had to control the climate. You got a, You've got a big glass house here you know it's just like your car on a hot summer day you close it up and you, and you open it and you sit in and you're just like whoa this is just way too hot exactly so if we if we did no controlling the radiant energy that came in doesn't e- easily escape out and we would reach lethal temperatures in about 30 to 40 minutes inside biosphere so what you can't see a a little over 3 acres that's above ground there's about almost two acres below ground. We have all these mechanical devices that help to circulate the air, to help condition the air, to help move water from one end to the other. And that's how they control the conditions or the climate inside.
0: Well, I've driven from here to Tucson and, and so forth, and I've seen the signs along the highway, you know, come visit Biosphere 2. This is a lot more than a roadside novelty.
1: It is, and it's right here in southern Arizona. Uh, you know, it started out with a little bit of a a, a rocky beginning, but you know, today it's incredible because you know we've got this facility that was privately financed. It was donated to the University of Arizona. There was an endowment that helps us helps us get by. Uh, we always, you know, continue to to need and, and would need additional funding to to move things forward, but we we work through those as well. But it's right here and it's a it's a really unique tool scientifically that can help to contribute and i think is a critical piece that we need to so so that we can understand our natural systems
0: for the listener what is your role with biosphere 2
1: yeah so my role is i'm deputy director and chief operating officer but you know i pretty much started my career here at biosphere 2 so um, i'm a graduate from the university of arizona i started here at biosphere 2 in late 1995 um, and they have not been able to get rid of me since. <laughs> so no, I feel extremely fortunate to have worked here as long as I have. You know, I started out on the plant physiology side and doing database access and data visualization for them, and then you know have just you know sort of that proverbial I started in the mailroom and worked my way up. I mean that is my story here. I I started you know essentially as a research intern and then as a research specialist. Um, and this continued to learn and absorb everything that was going on here, worked with some incredible people uh, then and today, worked with some amazing people and have just been really fortunate to be given a lot of opportunities that I was able to take advantage of that, um, you know, allows me to be where I'm at today. Have you
0: got one favorite thing about Biosphere 2?
1: Well, my favorite thing is the rainforest. I I, I really enjoy it. And, you know, when I started here and I, and I even still today, spend a bit of time. We do a lot of structural climbing inside. So the lattice work allows us to get up in the canopy. And and so my favorite thing is to be able to, to climb up into the top of the rainforest structure, look down on it. Um, I, I just really enjoy that aspect. And so that's, a I don't get to do it as much as I used to, but it, it, it's a novelty that um, is still novel for me.
0: If people want to plan a trip or learn more about Biosphere, how do they find it?
1: So, I mean, the best way I think for everybody is go to our website. So biasfor2.org, all of the information is there. So you, there's a nice tab that talks about visit bias for two. So you can look, if you're looking to visit, if you want to know a little bit more about research, uh, there's a research tab. You know, the other thing we have is we have a great conference center here. Um, it's or it's a, it's on the smaller side, but we have a lot of conferences uh, that use the facility and really enjoy having the isolation and so, and we, you know, we're a little bit remote, not as much as we were once, because obviously everything is moving north of Tucson. But it's a great venue to come out. So, you know, all of that information is available there. Um, I'm on the website, so if people have specific questions for me, or if you're in an area where maybe you're looking at possible research ideas, and and the what we've described here today may help you get at some of those answers to the questions you're posing, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. I I can help connect you with our research teams here and we can explore those possibilities as well.
0: I'm uh, starting a thing called encourage a farmer. And the idea is the ag industry nationwide, of course, is working their butts off to provide food for not only us, but the whole wide world. And if you'd like to encourage the American farmer, we'd love to hear it.
1: Absolutely. We we need them um, it's incredible at what they do with with very little. and you know I know how hard it is and how difficult it is to to make a go at it. and you have really good years and you have really bad years. But you know without them, we're not going to be where we need to be. And population is growing and food production is going down. those Those things do not add up in a, a good way. My hat If I had a hat on, my hat is off to all of those who do that. and and not only the people who are in the field but the people who are supporting them too. You've
0: been listening to Open Field Radio from Gallon Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. The views and opinions expressed by the guests of Open Field Radio are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the program. All rights reserved. No duplication or redistribution without permission.